0: listening to ohio versus the world an american history podcast subscribe and follow the show on itunes stitcher spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to join the conversation on facebook or at our website ohio the world podcast.com ohio versus the world is part of the evergreen podcast network go to evergreenpodcast.com for all our past episodes now here's your host alex Hasty.
1: Welcome back. It's the Season 6 finale, and we've got one of our best episodes ever for you. Special thanks to our friends at Evergreen Podcasts. Ohio View the World is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. So thankful for their help this year. We look forward to rejoining the network in 2022. You can go to evergreenpodcast.com, listen to all 12 episodes from Season 6, and go back and listen to our previous 90 episodes or whatever it is. As much as I like history, I'm an even bigger sports fan. Today we'll tell the bizarre, dangerous, and at times hilarious story of ten-cent Beer Night, a Tuesday night baseball game on the shores of Lake Erie between the Cleveland Indians and the Texas Rangers on June 4th 1974. We'll speak with the people who were there 47 years ago, the players, the umpires, the announcers, the beat writers and the photographers. We've been given these amazing interviews to tell this story accurately from the people who lived it. There's not a proper history anywhere of this truly infamous evening at the cavernous Cleveland Municipal Stadium. We've gone into every myth, we've looked at the inaccuracies that have been perpetuated by this event, because a game that was attended by 25,000 Clevelanders over the years, that number has grown now to like a quarter million people who claim they'd attended 10-cent Beer Night. We'll provide you with an oral history. I'm only going to serve to frame the characters, help you understand what Cleveland and the United States were like in the summer of 1974. It was not a great summer in our country's history, but mostly we'll stay out of the way. I recently read the great young historian Garrett Graff's book, The Only Plane in the Sky An Oral History of 9-11, over the 20th anniversary on vacation, I strongly recommend it. Graphs you know, serve sparingly as a narrator. Let's see Americans that lived through that horrible day tell the story. Also inspired by the uh, ESPN 30 for 30 many years ago by Brett Morgan, entitled June 17, 1994. Another excellent oral history of a truly emotional day in American history, not just in sport. But our season finale in oral history of 10 Cent Beer Night won't be as serious as those movies and books. That's fine. We all need a laugh. Let's play ball. It's episode 12, Ohio vs. Beer.
2: In short of the National Guard, I'm not sure what would handle this crowd right now. I just...
3: The unbelievable thing is people keep jumping out of the stands after they see what's going on. Oh, this is absolute tragedy.
4: I'm surprised
3: that the police from the city of Cleveland have not been called here. But we have the making of a pretty good riot. We have a pretty good riot.
1: Ten-cent beer night. I've got a t-shirt from the fine folks at Homage commemorating the event June 4th, 1974. Hell, I even wrote a song about it years and years ago. With the baseball playoffs upon us, both Ohio teams missed this year, actually. You gotta know, I'm a huge baseball fan. The Hasties root for all Ohio teams, but the family baseball team has been the St. Louis Cardinals since the early 1960s. We were bounced out of the playoffs in a walk-off fashion by the Dodgers last week, but... I root for the Indians, of course, as well, and they've been a great franchise for the last 25 years, one of the best records overall during that time in the game. But it wasn't always that way. The Cleveland Indians have not won a championship since 1948. It's the longest stretch in major North American sports. And from 1954 to 1995, they didn't even make the playoffs. This story comes in the middle of that 40-year postseason drought when the Indians were the laughingstock of the league. The manager that took them out of that downward spiral and actually led them to two World Series appearances in the 1990s is our first guest, Mike Hargrove. He was in the Indians' dugout when they lost that heartbreaking 1997 World Series in the extra innings of Game 7, Jose Mesa, Tony Fernandez. Sorry to bring it up, Cleveland fans. But Mike was actually a rookie, actually American League Rookie of the Year in 1974 for the Texas Rangers. And it was the Rangers who came to town that infamous night in June of 74. Hargrove would find himself in the middle of the action that night. Mike was asked if he was surprised to learn that it was a full moon that Tuesday night on the North Coast.
5: No, I wouldn't, have I wouldn't have been surprised. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm going to tell you the truth. If somebody had driven an Army tank out on that field that night, it wouldn't have surprised me. <laughs> yes. You know, I mean,
4: everybody
5: had long hair. There was a few guys that looked like werewolves that night, too. So.
1: We're just going to introduce the entire cast of characters for this episode because once we start going, there's really not going to be much time to stop and talk about the interview subjects. Our second guest will be a voice recognizable to Cleveland sports fans, the Indians, and then the Cavaliers' play-by-play announcer, Joe Tate. He's the voice of the Cavs for the first 40 years of their existence. I'll always remember him calling a LeBron dunk and going wham with the right hand. But Joe was there in the booth that night at Municipal Stadium. We'll hear his call of the riot, and he gave a really cool interview as well. Joe passed away uh, earlier this year after a long battle with cancer.
6: Cleveland has not cornered the market on bad behavior. The bottom line, very simply, it was a stupid idea that never should have happened in the first place.
1: We'll also hear from two of the four umpires that were on the field that night. Their crew, with along with the late Hall of Fame umpire Nestor Shylock, they had a challenging night, to say the least, trying to keep that game moving. We hear from the home plate umpire that night, Larry McCoy, and then from the first base umpire, Joe Brinkman. They gave great insight into the history of baseball, not just 10-cent beer night in their interviews, but McCoy remembers a mysterious smoky haze covering the field when they came out for the opening pitch that night in Cleveland.
7: When we walked out on the field that night... There was a smoky haze. It looked like smog. I didn't know anything about dope or anything. And I asked one of the guys, I said, what in the world? That sweet, sweet sticky smell. Nick Bremigan, who's now deceased, told me, he said, Rock, you never smelled marijuana before? And I said, no, I never have.
8: So there's already a layer of marijuana covering the ballpark. When I think of my whole career, I think of, I think of the Tinset Beer night being probably the most unique thing that ever happened, different. Never seen it before, hope to never see it again. Another thing I was involved with was the Pintar game, which was, uh, I think everybody remembers that, even, probably even more so than, than uh, ten cent Beer Night. But they were totally different situations, but, but very unique situations.
1: Besides Mike Cargrove, who gave such a great interview, we loved hearing from the Texas Rangers beat writer back in those days, author Mike Shropshire. Mike followed this new franchise the Texas Rangers in the 1970s, was writing for the Dallas Morning News at the time. Mike's written for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, uh, he's contributed to Sports Illustrated, Playboy magazine. And he has this kind of like gonzo, Hunter S. Thompson style of sports writing. And it's on full display in his book, Seasons from Hell, about the early years of the Texas Rangers who first moved from Washington, D.C. to the Dallas area in 1972. They were the Washington Senators prior to that. Esquire magazine listed his book, Seasons from Hell. as one of the 20 best baseball books of all time. And, and we agree, it's a really fun read. And Mike is a real character. And he had himself a great time covering 10 cent Beer Night.
9: I had to do this a, a seminar for a journalism class and somebody said uh you know you've been covering sporting events for uh, 130 years and that what's the one that you remember most and i said that uh, the cleveland bear night ride and there's not a close second uh I, I came away with a whole different attitude about the rust belt in cleveland and uh, and the whole thing i've said these 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 folks are very real they're genuine
1: paul tepley joined the show he passed away back in 2018 but Paul was the photographer for the Cleveland Press. Cleveland, like most major cities, had two newspapers in the 1970s. The Cleveland Press, which would close in the early 80s, succumbing to the plane dealer. But Paul was on the field that night, and he took some amazing photos at 10-cent Beer Night.
0: If there's a, a more frightening or bewildering feeling than standing in the middle of a ride, I don't know what it is. You know, I, I shot a picture of one guy, and I truthfully, the picture shows blood dripping down his cheek, you know. And I felt bad about that, because I don't know how that guy got hurt. I don't know what he was doing. I don't know, but obviously from the picture, it looked like he did something wrong in order to get that, you know. And uh, I, I really never found out who the guy was.
1: We also hear from Tom Bonda. Tom is the son of the Indians' executive vice president at the time, Ted Bonda. Tom had some great insight into how Tencent Beer Night happened, how the idea came about. The state of the franchise in the early '70s, and, and spoiler alert, it was not a good situation with the Indians. It's actually very surprising that the Indians didn't relocate. The fact that they're still in Cleveland is kind of amazing. Financially, they were a mess, which helps explain how this promotion probably happened in the first place. And Tom Bonner discusses the connection between beer and baseball.
10: When you go to a ball game, you have certain memories: Mom, apple pie, baseball. But really, I think if you ask many fans, what do you sort of remember? a ballpark besides baseball, of course. It's beer here, get your beer here. Vendors everywhere serving beer, people drinking beer. It's part of the culture of baseball in ways. It's sort of the American heritage and having a beer at the ball game.
1: And lastly, we're joined by a friend who made this oral history of 10 Cent Beer Night possible, filmmaker and film editor Seth Mockerman. Seth was kind enough; he handed over some of these great interviews for our episode. I still hope his sports documentary about 10 Cent Beer Night gets made, and maybe with the 50th anniversary coming up, he and his partner uh, John Dolphin can can get that chance. Seth talks to us about how he even got involved in documenting this crazy story of 10 Cent Beer Night.
11: You know, we can thank the uh, Cozart era Browns for breaking my 12 year old heart so much to uh, not really care about sports anymore. Like years ago, I had, I was actually at a Chris Robinson show at the Newport and there was a dude standing there that had a press pass and I just started chatting with him and he was there covering it for, I don't know, Drummer Magazine or something like that, some some magazine. And he, we started talking, I told him I did video. He said he had some ideas of stuff he wanted to do because he was a writer. And eventually, we ended up doing a, you know, like low-budget documentary about Ted Ginn Sr. He had told me about 10 Cent Beer Night, and he's like, "I think this is a really great story." And you know, he told me about it. We started digging into it, and I'm like, "Yeah, this is a really good story." And that's how we, you know, we like ended up flying around the country to shoot a bunch of these interviews in the hopes of, you know, developing it and turning it into another project.
3: Seven persons were indicted today for trying to cover up the Watergate scandal.
2: The accused
3: included all four of President Nixon's former top advisors, the four men who at one time were closest to Mr. Nixon and held the positions of highest trust. All seven of the men indicted today were charged with conspiracy. Some of the charges also included perjury, lying under oath, and obstruction of justice. Overshadowing what happens to those seven men is the more important question What does today's development mean for Richard Nixon? For the President of the United States, is the worst now over
1: or only beginning? The spring and summer of 1974 is an incredibly tumultuous time in America. As the 1974 Indians were in Tucson, Arizona for spring training, the Watergate 7, Nixon's closest advisors, including his Attorney General John Mitchell, are all indicted in federal court. The cover-up had been exposed by men like White House counsel John Dean, John, an Ohio native himself, he joined us for our Watergate episode. It's actually our season four premiere episode back in 2019. Still one of my favorite episodes we've done. You can go find that Watergate episode. Uh, You can look on our website, com. scroll down on your iTunes or Stitcher, um, or you can always go to our page at evergreenpodcast.com. That's where part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and all of our past episodes. I think this is like our 89th or 90th episode, but they're all on there. Watergate cast a pall on the entire country in the spring of 1974. The, The walls were closing in on Nixon as members of his Republican Party began to call for his removal. But there's another problem in America that year, the oil crisis. OPEC, the organization of major Middle Eastern oil producers, had closed exports of oil to the United States and other countries as a result of our support of Israel in the Yom Kippur War in late 1973. An already plunging economy was sent into a tailspin, lines at gas stations, even if they had gas, And the price shot up four times in the matter of a week. It would be like us in the Midwest today paying eight or $9 a gallon.
11: We're
2: in an energy crisis now and will be for some time to come. Until 1950, the United States could supply the energy needed. But in less than 25 years, we found ourselves in trouble. In 1968, natural gas consumption began exceeding new discoveries. By 1970, we imported one-third of our oil and gas. Then, in 1973, the big Middle East producers cut off oil shipments to major consuming countries. The price of foreign oil had jumped from 3 to $12 a barrel. No one was spared its impact. At the height
1: of the embargo, half a million people were thrown out of work. The country was suffering from what economists called stagflation. Stagflation is when inflation is high, economic growth shrinks, and unemployment's high, all at the same time. It's kind of the worst of all worlds. By the summer of 74, the U.S. was beset by this crippling oil embargo, skyrocketing inflation that had staggered the economy, and a corrupt scandal plagued president. As court-ordered desegregation of schools spread across the country and white people continued leaving cities for the suburbs, there's deindustrialization and the loss of millions of blue-collar jobs. All that had accelerated by the end of the Nixon administration. No United States city felt the sting of these things more than Cleveland, Ohio. Mike Shropshire, then a reporter for the Dallas Morning News, discusses the situation in Cleveland. We hear from the folks in the unemployment line those days.
9: The beer night riot, it could only really have happened in the early 70s throughout the United States. It was sort of an anything goes type of um, environment, dope free love, and all these other things that we used to enjoy so much. Cleveland in 1974 was witnessing the sunset of the Post-war American Industrial Age. The factories were closing. The river had caught on fire, and you know they were. The, the city itself was, I guess, sort of the poster child for the industrial depression. Municipal Stadium was really sort of symbolic of uh, what was going on in the in the Rust Belt. It was vast and it was big and it was impressive and it was empty most nights. It was the perfect setting. People were saying, well people are angry about losing their jobs and so and they say well this the beer night thing was sort of a reflection of what was happening.
2: But can't find jobs are part of today's other bad economic news. The unemployment rate soared to 8.2 percent nationwide last month and in the lines today few people were expressing any optimism about quick economic recovery
8: automotive assembler and i've worked for general motors for five years and i've been unemployed since the 8th of november
10: i'm a waitress how long have i been out of work since june the 20th of 73. what do you think about the president's
2: proposals for uplifting the economy. You feel that they're going to help people like yourself get back to work quickly? No, not quickly. Not at all. It's going to take a long time because it took a long time to get where we were now.
10: Have you ever seen it this bad? Yes,
2: during the Depression.
1: Cleveland was in deep trouble by 1974. In the 1970s, Cleveland lost 177,000 residents. That's nearly 25% of its population moved away, gone. 600 factories in Cleveland and Cuyahoga County had left in that decade. City council had actually met in 74 to discuss declaring bankruptcy. It's a city that would ultimately default by 1977, and that's a story for a whole other day. The Indians were desperate for fans. Many of their fans were experiencing, you know, economic distress, or they were just flat out no longer in Cleveland. Ted Bonda, the new executive vice president of the Indians, was desperate for revenue. His son Tom Bonda talked to us about the city of Cleveland in the early 70s. Where he lived during this dark period in Cleveland's history.
10: In order to really understand a lot of what happened in Cleveland, I think you have to understand where Cleveland was in the 1970s, early 1970s. Cleveland was not in great shape. There was very little happening in downtown Cleveland. People were leaving Cleveland quickly. We had a theater district called Playhouse Square. Today I believe it is the second largest theater district in the country behind New York's Broadway. Back then, it was was scheduled to be torn down. They had actually written the city council to prove tearing down the theaters. The Indians, being in terrible, terrible shape, were looking for almost any promotion that they could have to draw people. They were averaging, I believe, around 6,000, 5,000 fans a night. It's not going to make it that way. They always had a big opening day, but after that, it became very difficult. They had all kinds of promotions. Uh, the typical bat days, ball days, etc. They had the great Welenda walk across the stadium on a tightrope, drew some fans. Uh, I to, got to meet him, which was quite a character. Then the idea of this 10-cent beer night came up. I remember like my father, was not a drinker, I never saw him have a beer in his entire life, but thought, hey, I can draw more people. There had been beer nights in other stadiums and other venues around the uh, league, so they just had to have one. The rest, as they say, is history.
1: One of the biggest problems is the stadium, Cleveland Municipal Stadium. I went there for games as a kid, and I remember it just being enormous, cavernous, I believe is, is how many refer to it. It was not a stadium built for baseball. In fact, it was built during a sunnier time in Cleveland's history, just before the Great Depression. Cleveland was the nation's fifth largest city in 1928. As the stadium was being built, it was part of Cleveland's attempt to try and get the Summer Olympic Games, the games that eventually end up going to Los Angeles, but the stadium was a centerpiece of that ill-fated bid. We looked at Cleveland's attendance back in the day. In 1973, they drew 74,000 people to opening day versus the Tigers, which means their remaining attendance on those 80 games, uh, 80 home games, was about 6,000 folks, 6,000 fans in a stadium that holds 75, 80,000. It looks empty. The Indians would have most likely moved to Florida or New Orleans if not for our guest Tom Bonda's dad, Ted he talks to us about the dire situation facing his dad and the Cleveland Indians in the 70s. Nick
10: was president of the Indians at the time, owner of the Indians, and asked my father to step in as, at the time, executive vice president and take over the total operational control of the Indians. The Indians were in miserable, miserable shape. They were losing money. They were either last or near last in the league in attendance. In 1973, I believe they drew just over 600,000 fans. When you think about today, people draw 3 million, 2 million. Their break-even point was probably a million, million, 4, somewhere in that area. They had no money. Uh, the owners, and there were something like 47 owners of the Indians. Um, many of them have been owners for a long time. A gentleman named Bob Hope was an owner of the Indians. He had, I think, one or two shares. And my father often tried to contact Bob to get him to do more for it and I think finally got a meeting with him, but he never did anything. But there was a group of probably seven or eight people who were the majority owners of the Indians. And they continually have cash calls. They had financial troubles. But my father took it on himself to try and save the Indians. His major objective was to make sure the Indians stayed in Cleveland. That was his biggest concern by far. Yes, he would have loved to have won a championship, but he wanted for the citizens of Cleveland, the fans of Cleveland to have a baseball team. He received a couple offers during his time from various groups. Uh, He was sure that they would leave Cleveland if they bought it. Donald Trump was one of the people. Um, And he turned every offer down. You know, my father even explored building a new stadium at one time in Cleveland. Municipal Stadium, uh, although it was a fun place in many ways, and I have fond memories of it, was a tough place to play. It had 80,000 seats. It had bathrooms that worked sometimes. And it was cold and dark and damp and on the lake. And April games were, you know, pretty nasty to sit there. And if If we ever got the World Series, it would have been pretty nasty then too, but we never made it that far.
8: We shall begin our hearing by considering materials relevant to the question of presidential responsibility for the Watergate break-in and its investigation by law enforcement agencies. Today
2: the committee starts consideration of the most awesome power constitutionally vested in the House of Representatives. The power of impeachment is one of those great checks and balances written in our Constitution
1: The House Judiciary Committee begins its impeachment hearings in May of 1974. At the end of that month, just a couple weeks later, the Indians had a series scheduled with the Texas Rangers. The Rangers had been terrible in their first couple years in Arlington, Texas. They had a good season going in 1974 under their new manager, the mercurial Billy Martin. Billy Martin was a great player for the Yankees in the 50s. He'd won four World Series championships with the Bronx Bombers before becoming a manager. He was a riot. Martin would be hired and fired five different times in New York as the Yankees manager during his love-hate relationship with Ohio native and Yankees owner George Steinbrenner. This is before all those years in New York. In New York, if they would hire Martin for a year or two, they'd fire him. A year or two later, they'd hire him again. But he'd spend a year and a half in Texas uh, before wearing out his welcome with ownership there. Rangers beat writer and author of Seasons in Hell about those years in Texas, Mike Shropshire talks to us about the Indians' opponent in 10 Cent Beer Night, the 1974
9: Texas Rangers. When Billy came in 1974, things changed. And Billy's, what he did was he was living proof that attitude is everything. So in 1974, there was a, a new attitude on the Rangers. They had a, a one really good pitcher, Ferguson Jenkins, that they brought in. And so suddenly, they sort of reflected Martin's personality. There was a certain belligerence about the way that they played. And so they... Uh, if any team was going to participate in a beer night riot uh, they were the ideal ones to do it. They they regarded themselves as renegades, outsiders. The Texas and Cleveland franchises were, uh, and this goes back to even when the the days when they were the Washington Senators, they both sort of seemed to share an office space that was located in the basement of the American League standings. Uh, And they actually swapped a lot of personnel back and forth. (laughs) And so there was a Cleveland and Texas franchises were sort of mirror images of each other.
1: Billy Martin was an alcoholic, but he's a great manager. He would play a central role in Tencent Beer Night, but he's constantly fighting with players, opponents, random members of the community. I mean, Joe Tate and the umpires from that night, they talk about their relationships with Billy. Mike Shropshire shares his stories of Billy Martin's fights, which literally we had to cut short because there's so many of them. But the book is full of these great Billy Martin stories. Uh, Mike Shropshire's book, Seasons in Hell, there's a link in the show notes to, to buy that. I mean, Billy once lost his job as the Yankees manager after getting into a fight in a hotel bar with a marshmallow salesman. This random marshmallow salesman who thought said he thought somebody else deserved to be American League Manager of the Year over him. He once fought his own Yankees pitcher, Ed Whitson, in the 1980s. Whitson, who for years has made his home here in Columbus, Ohio. Whitson was like 6'7". He's a master in karate martial arts. He actually broke Billy Martin's arm in that fight in a hotel bar in Baltimore. Martin was fired for the last time by the Yankees a month later. That was in 1985. But including all these jobs, he's hired, fired, resigned from nine different managing jobs in the major leagues. Our guests tell us credible baseball manager Billy Martin.
6: Billy Martin was a manager that never backed away from a fight and perhaps uh, looked for them once in a while. Personally, I have nothing negative to say about Billy Martin, but I'm sure hearing some of the other stories about Billy, uh, you probably could find some stuff that might tarnish that a little bit. When you when I
8: think about Billy Martin, he was probably one of the toughest managers there was. But once uh, once he realized that you wouldn't back off and, and you would fight as hard as he would, he, he'd kind of let you alone. Uh, I remember in, in I think, 1970, 1974, I ejected him five times before, like, May 5th. And uh, so we had our wars, so to speak. But yet, his latter years, uh, I, would, I, I enjoyed working for him because you knew that he, he wanted the most out of you and you would give him the most. But, but I kind of liked Billy in the end, but I didn't like him at first, I'll say that.
7: From the All-Star break, he gave me a ride back to the airport on Thursday afternoon. We were playing at night, and now he said, I've done run him twice. He said, we're going to be buddies from now on and all that. <laughs> I go to first base. He's got a man on. The other team's got a man on first. One out, three, two. Half swing. Check swing. Don calls it no swing. They throw down the first, got him second, got him easy, but it's ball four. They ask me. I say no swing. Five runs later. Yeah. <laughs> five <laughs> runs later, Martin <laughs> comes out, Pitcher's mound. and I said, If you got something to say to me, get over here and say it. And I, <laughs> he was over there like that. <laughs> <laughs> he wouldn't come over.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
7: that was that was the time that uh had done running so many times, but then, he, you know, he wanted to kick that dirt on you, I just, as he was coming over, I once stepped into the grass because I knew what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. He wasn't going to kick no dirt on me. And Billy drank a lot,
9: but Billy could be as affable, genuinely pleasant to be around until after his fourth drink, and then it was like someone had pulled down a window shade with Look Out written on it, and so that's when I knew him. Moved back, and it was kind of funny to watch Billy in action uh, from a distance. Like Billy liked to be seen, uh, and Billy would always, whether you were in New York or Chicago or Boston, he would find the the hottest joint in town and find the most conspicuous seat in the hottest bar in whatever city you were in because he liked to be seen, and people said. Well, you know, people would come up and hassle him, and that's why he'd get in these barroom fights. Well, he would he would seek that out, going, you know, well, Billy, what's going on? Look at this. He says, it's a $3,000 bar tab from this country club in Fort Worth. He said, how do they expect me to go out there and pay that bill if I'm no longer welcome on the premises? And he threw the thing away. If I wrote a story every time Billy Martin got in a fight, there wouldn't have been any room in the paper for Watergate. I mean, it was just... Uh, almost nightly occurrence. We were in Anaheim, and the bartender cut off. You've had enough, and so then all of a sudden Billy, you can't, this is America, you know, you don't have the constitutional right to tell a man when he can or can't drink. You know, you got it buddy? At which point a guy comes in, not knowing that it was Billy Earhart, I guess, and says to the bartender, said, As soon as you get through arguing with these two stupid schmucks, can I get a drink? And I went, "Uh uh-oh. And of course, the next thing you hear is the sound of breaking glass and this and that, and of course, the cops came. When he first came to Texas, he went to the mayor of Arlington, Tom Vandergriff, and said, here's the deal, Mr. Mayor. He said, I drive a black Continental with a white vanity plate with the number one on it. He said, you tell your cops to leave that car alone. He said, if I'm driving on the sidewalk, I'm driving on the sidewalk.
1: And as we said, the Indians and the Rangers had a series in late May 1974, less than a week before Tencent Beer Night. Their final game in Arlington would end up in a giant five-minute brawl between the two teams that, that set the stage for their next matchup on June 4th, 1974, the day in question we're talking about today. We hear from Joe Tate, the Indians announcer, and Rangers first baseman Mike Hargrove about that first fight between the two teams, which by all accounts is a pretty epic brawl.
5: We had played Cleveland the week before and in Texas, and Wilcox was a pitcher. He had been throwing at Lenny Randall. I don't know why he was throwing at him, but he, but he had been throwing at him and kept missing. So Lenny, Lenny's last at bat. Lenny uh, laid down a bunt down the first baseline. Wilcox Milk came over to to feel, the, feel the, the bunt. He was probably three, four foot. Lenny had to go out of his way to do this. Um, you know, three, four foot uh, inside the line, bent over to pick it up and then straightened up to go tag him, and Lenny just nailed him. I mean, just ran him straight over. That was kind of Lenny's way of saying you shouldn't be throwing at me, which I thought was pretty unique. I, yeah, I'd never thought about doing that. And, you know, from that, then, you know, there's a big brawl.
6: Well, that's what Lenny did. Milt Wilcox was the pitcher, and uh, Lenny laid it down and went after Milt. Lenny made one fatal mistake. He kept running after he clobbered Wilcox ran into John Ellis who was playing first base. That was like running into a uh, jackhammer because I think Ellis hit him about five times before Lenny even knew what happened. But then again, that was all part of the preceding activity that kind of set the stage for what happened in Cleveland a week later.
5: Uh, about an inning later, maybe at the end of that inning, uh, Dave, Dave Duncan was catching for the, for the Indians. Is at the end of the dugout, I'll never forget looking over and seeing some fan yelling at him, and Dave turned around and pointing his finger. And when he did, the guy just poured a beer straight on his head and, and all down his face. And, and Dave had that long hair at that time, and it was, it soaked him. And I thought, oh, that's not, that's not good. That's it for all the people you want to pour a beer on. Dave Duncan would be the last guy I would uh, do that to.
6: Then, of course, the Texas crowd got mad, and when the Indians left the field, they were pouring cups of beer on the Indians. Kind of a unscheduled prelude to what was going to happen in Cleveland for the rematch.
5: That started it, uh, from what I've heard. Uh, the talk shows around town here in Cleveland uh, really played it up that the, the the Rangers are coming back into town. Let's go show them what Clevelanders are made of, and they can't do this to our guys. And and uh, and got it got it going. And they just happened to have 10 cent beer night at the same time. So it was like a perfect storm. We just were not on a boat.
1: interviewed after the game and he was asked if he was afraid of retribution in the series the next week following week in cleveland he commented about how the few fans cleveland had and and how he wasn't worried and our guest and filmmaker seth Mockerman who conducted all these interviews and did the research found out how martin was quoted in the paper the next day when he was asked about the rangers upcoming trip to cleveland and if their team and the indians fans would be out for revenge
11: i'll read you the quote that i have uh, that was in the newspaper i could give a expletive deleted less that's all i said that that's what's quoted in the newspaper uh i should probably look up online to find out what the expletive was but like i'm you know i'm sure we could all imagine what
1: it would be the cleveland media the newspapers the sports radio personality pete franklin they all latched on this rivalry in cleveland and the way that rangers fans had treated the tribe they spent a week firing up northeast ohio for this rangers indians game set for Tuesday, June 4th.
9: The great bunt down the first baseline, I think, uh, you know, a lot of people subsequently have said, well, that was the, the catalyst that, that led to uh, what happened at the beer night thing. Disc jockey in Cleveland uh, had kind of been sort of whipping up the fans' enthusiasm, you know, there was some kind of shtick, but let's get back at these Rangers. And, but the mood of the crowd was such that, uh, that it was really anti-Ranger, you know, because they'd boo every time a Ranger would come up to bat, and
0: with all the stuff that was written, you know, you just, you had to feel and be ready for something to happen. I didn't know if there'd be a fight, you know, I don't know.
1: Mike Shropshire arrived Tuesday afternoon to cover the game, and he knew things were a little different. Then again, the 70s were a little different. Mike Shropshire lands in Cleveland, gets on the rapid to downtown. Ten-cent beer night starting a little early for some folks in Cleveland.
9: Came into the Hopkins Airport and then took a commuter train directly into downtown cleveland and with each stop more and more fans were climbing on to the to the commuter train they were primed and loaded for this beer night thing and i noticed that a lot of them were already in really good shape for this in fact a guy offered me a swig from his bottle of crown royal that he was drinking there on the train and i took the swig too because nice guy you know, I didn't want to offend him. <laughs> it was my intuition that this was going to be kind of a special night. And in fact, I was kind of thinking at the time, more like they were coming home from a beer night right, or, you know, rather than on the way to it.
12: Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. Number of the interviewees
1: mentioned how hot it was. Seth asked Mike Hargrove, the great former Indians manager, if he had one word to describe Ten Cent Beer Night.
5: When I think back and, and, and recall Ten Cent Beer Night, I mean, the one the one you know the one word that that uh, keeps coming back to me is is uh, scary. I mean it was it was uh, it wasn't it wasn't frightening or scary while it was happening, you know, and I'm talking about when the fans came out on the field. Um, because you're you're so into what's going on and, and trying to help other people and look for help, um, it wasn't scary then. But it was when, when I got into the dugout, when I got into the dugout, and walking back to the to the clubhouse, it was scary. I mean, it was really scary. I mean, people don't realize the severity of it all. That uh, that you know that we you know we had an umpire. I think it was an umpire, Nestor Shalik had his had his uh, hand split open by a throne chair somebody could have gotten seriously seriously hurt not just players but 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 a fan too and and i mean it was that that sort of intensity that sort of uh, of adrenaline flowing and you're in the middle of it it's it's you're in the middle of it but when you got away from it and got back to where you were relatively safe uh, the the enormity of it all hit and uh, and it was uh, it was scary
1: so this plan was not executed with precision by the Indians promotions department I believe that cent Beer Night is the reason I've personally never been allowed to order more than two drinks at any sporting event in my life. It's always two drinks, and they're incredibly rigid with that policy all over the country. And I've been to every kind of professional sporting event across this great nation. Two drinks, always two drinks. I blame all of this on 10 cent Beer Night when they were giving away Scro's, an old-timey cheap beer, for a dime.
11: Yeah, it was definitely Stroh's. There's, there's some photos of a dude running, waving his arms up straight towards the outfield wall, and a cops chasing him. You can see the Stroh's beer truck outside the uh, outfield. At 10-cent beer night, they had a they could buy six beers at a time, but throughout the course of the game, there was no limit to how many times you could come up and buy
1: it. Six beers. Six beers for a visit. Why well, even have a limit at that point? 25,000 fans showed up to Cleveland Municipal Stadium. That's about five times their normal crowd. Larry McCoy, the umpire, already told us about the cloud of smoke on the field, and things got off to an inauspicious start. The first inning, a woman ran on the field, and 10-cent beer night was underway.
6: Well, I just had totally forgotten about that woman running out there, and uh, she did, and had to be escorted off. I do not know what her mental state was. Obviously, uh, she uh, didn't belong where she showed up, that's for sure.
5: The only person they roughed, the cops roughed up, roughed up all night, was, was the lady with the breasts that came out and gave Mister the kiss. Well, they manhandled her, and I'm thinking, wait a minute, there's something wrong with this picture. The first
9: fan appeared on the field. A woman uh, went onto the Rangers on deck circle and exposed her breasts, and she was escorted by policemen. However, the ovation that she received, I think, sort of encouraged others to follow suit. The crowd loved it, and so I think more people then wanted to participate in, uh, in what was taking place. And so then, sporadically, as the game continued, uh, you'd see more and more folks going out on the field. They would, uh, uh, they had streakers. That was, you know, that was great fun, big fan thing in the, uh, in the 70s. And about the fourth inning, a father and son duo ran out to second base and mooned the crowd.
1: Drinks are flowing. There's long lines at these beer trucks the Indians have brought in to serve the crowd. The woman in the first inning started a trend. Streakers started running across the field. And Streaking was a big thing in the 70s, but this gets out of hand pretty easily. There's little to no security at this game. Almost no cops, but stadium security, mostly elderly ushers. There's something like 50 security guards at Municipal Stadium. That's like one guard for every 500 people.
5: The first inkling I had that things were just a little bit off uh, well, more than a little bit, a lot off, was, was in the in the first first or second inning, there were like two fans jumped out of the left field bullpen and onto the field and ran across and climbed back up in the stands. And all the guards <clears throat> that, that the Indians seemed to have at that time, they were all, you know, older gentlemen that didn't run very well, so they weren't going to get caught. And the next inning, it was four or five and, you know, did it. Then in the, in the next inning, it was more and more, and then, and then by the by the fifth or sixth inning, it was it was 15 to 20 running from this side across, and 15 to 20 to 30 running from this side across. You know, then you had the father son came out and mooned out in center field and dropped the drawers and mooned everybody. Uh, had a streaker come out on the field, and the and the cops really caught up with this guy. I'll never forget the guy comes out of the, he's got two black socks on, and he's running. He's run out to center field, and they're chasing him all over. He jumps up on the outfield fence, and as he's just getting over, the security guy jumps up, grabs him, and then he falls back, and all he comes away with is one black sock.
6: This thing built through the number of streakers that were racing across. It started with one or two or three. Then there were five. Then there were ten. Then there were about 20 streaking during the breaks between innings. It just kept building up, and then as the beer flowed freely, fights started to break out in some of the outer areas of the ballpark because that's where a lot of those uh, drinkers were, out, because they could get to the beer trucks more easily, out in the bleachers or in the corners by the foul poles. And as things uh, degenerate, I remember Herbie and I looking down and seeing people gathering up their families and leaving, in the sixth, seventh innings, I think it was at that point that we began to wonder if we weren't really headed for something, uh, something bad.
1: The Rangers jump out to an early leap. The third or fourth inning, of the line is so long at one of the beer trucks. There's two younger ladies. One's taking the money. The other's pouring the beer. There's just a table between them and the beer. And these drunken Clevelanders, people talk about how some fans were upset at the wait. They pick up the table and throw it aside. The two workers just rightfully, probably scared for their lives, they just walk away. Now the beer is not even 10 cents, it's free beer night at Cleveland Municipal Stadium.
9: The game continued and more and more people jump out of the stands and on the field. All of a sudden the mood seemed to kind of become a little less friendly, I suppose. Uh, they were... It's kind of like Billy Martin himself. They, You know, Billy was a, was a terrific guy, but after the fourth drink, there was a hostility that would pop out of him, and I think that might have been sort of taking place with the people in the stands, too. They were had gotten past the happy level, and now they're in sort of a mean, drunk stage.
1: Rangers all-star pitcher Ferguson Jenkins gets hit with a comebacker, a line drive right in the chest. He's down for a couple of minutes. Indians fans still pissed about the brawl last week, loaded on cheap beer, are cheering when he gets hurt. In the fifth, when the Rangers up 3-1, there's a close play where a Texas player is called safe. Fans are booing. Billy Martin, the Rangers manager, comes out of the dugout, starts blowing kisses to the Cleveland crowd to a chorus of boos. Hargrove's playing first base for the Rangers when he hears something hit the ground right behind him.
5: When I knew that things were starting to get a little ugly, was uh, I, there was somebody threw an empty gallon jug of Thunderbird wine out on the field at me. And it hit, it hit just behind me and rolled out, and I thought, golly, damn gum. Should I pick that up and just get off the field or, or, or just leave it there? And so I went over to it, and I kicked it off into foul territory, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm getting ready for the pitch, and all of a sudden this guy jumps out of the stands, runs out, grabs a jug, and runs back up in the stands. And I'm thinking, oh, well, I made a bad move. <laughs> I should have given it to somebody because I, I figured I'm going to get to revisit this situation.
1: Rangers take a 5-1 lead in the sixth inning. There's no stop the sale of alcohol rule in the seventh inning like you see in Major League Parks now. Tim Russert, the late host of NBC's Meet the Press, we both went to the same law school, Cleveland Marshall, but he was in law school at the time in Cleveland, and he was there at the game. He said, and I quote, I went to the game with $2 in my pocket, and you do the math, end quote. People always talk about the fireworks. We have that problem now living in the city. People are letting off fireworks all summer the last two years. Super annoying, especially when you have a baby. Not a fan, but, but people are letting off fireworks at the game. Cherry bomb or whatever is thrown in the Rangers' bullpen out in the outfield. Nestor Shylock, the crew chief for the umpires there. Shylock is in the Baseball Hall of Fame, actually, as an umpire. There's not a lot of umpires in in Cooperstown, but he decides to have both teams' pitchers leave the bullpen and sit in the safety of the covered dugouts, and they'll just have to warm up on the fields if they're called on to pitch. We talked with our umpires who were there, Joe Brinkman at first base, Larry McCoy at home plate, about trying to get the game in as the Indians start a furious comeback in the later innings down 5-1.
7: The fans weren't too rowdy when we first got there, but every inning... You could tell they're just getting a little more rowdy and a little more rowdy and a little more rowdy, and uh, probably if the Indians hadn't have rallied in the bottom of the ninth inning when rallying, this, this wouldn't have happened. We'd had several incidents where people had streaked across the field and uh, women come out and kiss the home plate umpire and all kind of stuff like that, but most of it was, you know, fairly harmless.
8: I know I spoke with Nestor a couple times, and uh, he says we should we should be able to get this in. That was really it. it. I was thinking to myself, I said, if McCoy would call a few more strikes, we'd get the hell out of here. You we know, I,
7: I was at home plate because <laughs> I remember the game. I thought, oh, crap. Just, I remember thinking just Throw. what we need is a tied ball game. You know, they they, they were rallying when yeah. this happened. They yeah. were rallying. and it ended up tied.
1: As the game goes into the ninth, the Rangers lead 5-3. Texas goes down 1-2-3 in the top half of the ninth, the bottom of the ninth begins and the Indians are rallying. They make the score 5-4. They load the bases. A sack fly makes it 5-5. The crowd which is already absolutely insane, is now even into the actual baseball as well, but not everybody, because there's a problem developing in right field. With a great slugger, Jeff Burroughs, is playing right for the Rangers. With two outs in the ninth inning, cent Beer Night becomes the Beer Night Riot.
9: Most of the fans were pouring out uh, from the, the right field, which was actually the best way to get there because the fence was lower out there. And so Jeff Burroughs, the Rangers right fielder was sort of then became the, the basic target of the, uh, of the fans' attention. And Jeff, uh, who was the American League MVP that season, and he was the kind of fellow that Beach Boys used to write songs about guys like him. He was laid back California, sort of a surfer boy, and it really took a lot to tick him off. He was California cool all the way. If anybody was going to be able to sort of stand up to what was going on out there and be good-natured about it and not lose his head, it would have
6: been Jeff. What set the whole thing off in the ninth inning, Jeff Burroughs was playing right field for the Texas Rangers, and some guys jumped down out of the stands and came up behind him and grabbed his hat and started to run back into the seats, and Burroughs gave chase. Now, at the old stadium, if you were in the third-base dugout, your view of what was going on in the right-field corner was impeded because of the crown of the field. And so Billy Martin lost sight of his right fielder. All he could see was this bunch of guys jumping over the wall down out of the field, and then Burroughs disappeared. And so Billy grabbed a bat and said, let's go get Jeff.
7: I knew that it was going to have a severe problem if we couldn't get them off the field. And uh, I was afraid when we tried to get them off the field, more were going to pour on, which is what eventually happened. And, of course, it led to an altercation. And when the altercation started, here come uh, Billy Martin with his bat raised, Art Fowler with him, and three or four other guys with, their, with bats in their hands. And that's when you knew it was going to be a problem, one that couldn't be controlled.
6: When they got out there... Now people had really started pouring down on the field and it, started, it was going to be, in fact, it was a fight. They were actually, When they got out there, they were fighting with, uh, I don't want to call them fans, they weren't fans. They were fighting with drunken bums.
5: You know, exactly, it was late in the ball game. I know that the, we, we had been ahead of the Indians the and they had the bases loaded or something and, and uh, were getting ready to beat us. Some kids jumped out of the stands, they ran across the field and Jeff Burrows was playing right field. And when they got to him, they jumped up and started grabbing at him, you know, just, you know, bugging him. And they grabbed his hat and they were trying to grab his glove off his hand. And, and I saw that. Um, and so I, and and then some more people jumped out out of the stands. And this great big guy jumped down off the, the, the bullpen and started, and when I saw that, that I dropped my glove and took off for right field. This poor guy never saw me coming, never did. And I got him real good as he was getting close to Jeff. And uh, what was amazing is that I got him, and it took but the three cops to, to, to handcuff him. That's when it got bad. Had the Indians players not come out and helped us, uh, it could have been a whole lot different story. And those that aren't involved in the melee uh, are running around. There's
3: several hundred people on the field now,
2: and the ball players have all banded together. The Rangers and the Indians, who were fighting each other last week, are now standing back-to-back down there and
9: I, I look down and now I see the Rangers now surging out on the field like the third cavalry but instead of swords they had baseball bats.
2: Tom Hilgendorf's been hit on the head and Hilge is in definite pain. He's bent over holding his head. Somebody hit Hilgendorf on the head and he is going to be assisted back into the dugout. Oh, This is absolute tragedy.
6: Absolute tragedy. Kenny Aspromati saw that the Rangers were in trouble, vastly outnumbered. So he led his team out of the first base dugout into the right field corner. When they got out there, now both ball clubs were fighting back to back to get out of the corner and back into the first base dugout. And there were people lobbing things out of the upper deck, down onto the field, Tommy Hilgendorf, a relief pitcher, was hit in the head, had his uh, skull split open by a piece of chair that somebody had thrown out of the upper deck.
8: It was like a three-ring circus when you, you, you look over here and you miss what happened over there and you look over there and the elephant did this over here and you're just going back and forth. So I really can't pick out any specific incident where I actually saw something happen to somebody.
0: When the rangers start going out, I shot a picture of them going out carrying their bats with very determined looks on their faces, and I followed them out out toward right field. Big clatter of something falling, coming down. And I looked to my right, and it was only about six feet away from me to my right. Someone had to have thrown that folding chair out from the second deck. And that's how close it came to me, you know, so I said, well. I get away from the stands, uh, so I went farther out in the field and, and followed the team out there.
2: Well, I've been in this business, Herb, and I know you have too, for over 20 years, and uh, I have never seen anything as disgusting as this. I haven't either. And I'll be perfectly honest with you, I just don't know what to say. I, I sit think, here...
4: And... I don't
3: think this game will continue, Joe.
2: I would suppose the umpires are going to
3: halt this game. I think there's a good chance that they will. The unbelievable thing is people keep jumping out of the stands after they see what's going on.
2: Well, that shows you the complete lack of brain power on the parts of some people. There's no way I'm going to run out on the field if I see some baseball player waving a bat out there looking for somebody. This is tragic. Boy, I sure hope Hilgendorf hasn't been severely hurt. Now I see that he is walking under his own power and he's looking for the guy that belted him. I would imagine,
3: Joe, that Billy Martin is going to pull his team off the field and refuse to come back out.
1: The Indians and the Rangers are now fighting with hundreds of drunk fans that are now on the field, out in the outfield. Hand-to-hand combat. But if you listen to those clips of Joe Tate and Herb score, You can hear the Indians organist playing what sounds like Take Me Out to the Ball Game and some other tunes. You hear fireworks, you hear fans yelling, but I couldn't stop focusing on that organ in the background. It's just so ridiculous with the scene that's playing out on the field. Our guest filmmaker Seth Mockerman, he noticed that too.
11: Some of the players did talk about there being fireworks thrown out. I know it was in some of the interviews. Like, you know, they're down there and people throwing firecrackers at them. But, you know, when I got that audio clip of the ninth inning, uh, you could just hear that, you know... Organ just slowly, you know, like floating in the background. And it just adds this bizarre, surreal quality, you know, this carnival, carnival like atmosphere to this game with just like, you know, this happy, you know, uh, organ playing in the background. There is a quote that's from the organist, and he's talking about like, he started playing just as, like, you know, <laughs> he tried to do his part to restore order and normalcy to the game, which, you know, at that point, nothing's going back to normal.
2: Well, the whole thing has degenerated now into just uh, – I, I don't know, Herb. I'm sitting here now. i got another fight going with fans and ballplayers. Hargrove has got some kid on the ground, and he is really administering well, of a beating. Well,
3: that, that fellow came up and hit him from behind is what happened.
2: Boy, Hargrove really wants a piece of him. And I don't blame him. Duke Sims down there going in.
6: Yeah, Duke is in on it. Here we go again. Well, uh, you know, Hargrove, uh, I've known Mike for years, and uh, he's one of the best people I've ever met in professional sports. But he does have a steely side to him that uh, if challenged, uh, he will answer the challenge. And if that happens, I want to be on his side. Uh, I'm sure... That he acquitted himself admirably on the field of battle. Anyway,
5: we all retreated, and it was really a retreat. We came back into the into the infield on the mound, and uh, and I and I remember, um, I remember looking up. I remember standing there, and there was a guy named Rusty Torres who played for the Indians, was standing next to me, and the bat that Billy had had in his hands, all of a sudden lands at, in the dirt at my feet. Somebody had thrown it. And it was cracked. It was broken in half. It wasn't broken completely in half. It was broken in half enough that some, you knew somebody had used it somewhere. Um, and uh, we bent down to pick that up. Uh, Rusty picked it up before I got to it. And I remember looking up as I stood up, looking up out towards center field. And it looked like there were, it looked like, I felt like I was at Custer's last stand because it was just a wall of people coming at you. Everybody stopped except this one guy. And this one guy kept coming toward me and, and uh, um, we, you know, he just, I'd, you know, just, it just is one of those confrontations and then uh, and I, you know, I just, it, and, and, uh, I won, he didn't, so I, I don't know how to, I, you know, I, I don't take a whole lot of pride in, in, uh, in doing that. Uh, but, uh, but I sure felt good that, that he didn't do to me what I did to him. I am surprised
3: I to, that the police from the city of Cleveland have not been called here.
2: We have to make it a pretty good riot. We have a pretty good riot. Now yep, the game I really believe or now will be called the field though is just mobbed with people and mob rule has taken well, they, they've stolen the bases. Now well, the. The security people they have here just are totally incapable of handling this crowd. They just. And I'm short of the National Guard, I'm not sure what would handle this crowd right now. It is just unbelievable, unbelievable.
6: Yeah, Herb and I both uh, noted that there were some aged uh, ushers and a few security people. Uh, They had no chance to bring order out of chaos, and Herb mentioned it was a riotous situation. I said the same thing. in fact, I think it went so far as to say the National Guard should probably be called in to quell this riot. Well, I know from having talked to some Cleveland policemen after the fact that they were on patrol and were listening to the ball game on the radio. And they heard those comments on the night that they called into their respective headquarters and said, we'd better get some people down to the ballpark. A riot has broken out. And that's when the cops came down and really did calm things down in a hurry.
2: Slowly but surely now the field is starting to clear somewhat. Both ball clubs Almost have gone back. Almost many people
3: go back in the seats, others jump down and take yep. their place.
2: The bases are gone. The Both teams are back into their respective dugouts. And I see Sammy Beach carrying the baseballs leaving the field. Apparently
3: he's been told by the umpires to get off the field.
2: All right here comes the announcement.
4: The game has
2: been declared a forfeit to the Texas Rangers. It'll go into the books as a nine to nothing forfeit. That is right. To the Texas Rangers. So the Indians battle back. Tie the game on the ninth. And then. The game is ruled forfeit. That's it. It's all over. The final score in a forfeit ruled by the umpires after a riot broke out here on the ninth inning after the Indians had tied the game 5-5. Final score in the books then will be Texas 9 and Cleveland nothing.
6: Going into the ninth, tied the game at 5, had the bases loaded with nobody out, and Nestor Shylock, the home plate umpire, I know later Herb and I talked to Nestor out in Oakland, and he said that he really wanted to end the ball game. Uh, not forfeit. but he said he was standing at home plate hoping that things would calm down, and he said he felt something behind his right heel, a kind of a nudge at the back of his right shoe. And he turned and looked down, and there was a knife sticking on the ground right behind his shoe, and it was at that point it was, that's it, game, set, and match, out of here, and uh, the umpires left the field. As soon as Nestor Shylock motioned, the game was over, forfeit signed off the air. That was it. I know we sat upstairs in the booth for a while because that was a combat zone down there. The mob mentality going, and by the time it was over, uh, it was very sad. And I think think if I'd been on the field as a ball player, I might have been a little concerned, frightened maybe, because there were people out there with knives and chains and pieces of chairs and they were bent on doing bodily harm to just about anybody they could find.
1: And the game was called. A forfeited game is scored 9-0 in Major League Baseball. It's a loss for the team that was forced to forfeit. The Cleveland police did show up finally, with batons in hand, started shooting tear gas in the crowd until they cleared the field, which didn't take long by most accounts. The police would really go in on you back in the day. Billy clubs raised. Mike Shropshire makes his way into the umpire's dressing room.
9: Bottles, you could see stuff coming down from the Uh, the stands. An umpire, Nestor Shylock, claimed he got hit with a bottle and a rock. Shylock was the senior umpire and the most respected of all the American League umpires. Uh, Everywhere you went before and after that everybody said a lot of these guys are lazy and they're not good umpires, but Shylock was the exception to that and he had the complete respect of uh, the players on all the teams in the American League and so if anyone was qualified to forfeit a game, he was the guy to do it. Uh, of all the people who I interviewed after the game, and I have never seen a person in my entire sports writing career as agitated and upset as that man was that night. I've never heard profanity come out of him, and his description of the, uh, of the fans was something that uh, I couldn't put in a family newspaper.
7: Well, I recall Shylock doing something, but it was after we was off the field. He was so mad he had never had a forfeited game in his career, and he took his mask and knocked out every light in the tunnel. <laughs> he was so he was so mad because he'd have to. I mean, here he, Nestor Shylock was undisputed the best umpire in the American League at that time. It was just burning him up that he's going to have to forfeit a game.
1: Mike then, writing for the Dallas Morning News, goes to the Rangers' dressing room. They were held in there for a while. As the stadium's cleared, and the police set up a, an escort for the Rangers to get to the team bus. Mike interviews Rangers manager Billy Martin. Billy tells him, and I quote, that's the closest you're ever going to be to seeing someone get killed in this game of baseball.
9: Wading my way down first to the Rangers dressing room, they, it was clear that those guys had felt like they'd had a close call with something very serious. They were, there, was nothing, there was no humor uh, about it to them. You know, beer night riot, uh, you know, how wacky is that? But they didn't think it was wacky or funny. Martin was unusually, he was verbose as usual but uh but that's the first time in that and only time i ever saw him seemingly frightened afterward back at the hotel the players were assembled naturally in the bar swapping their war stories and there were some pretty good ones burrows who i thought would have the you know the most colorful stories in that but uh, but his only concern was he says in a forfeit dear stats count says i hope not i was 0 for 4 tonight
1: And just so you know jeff even though the game was 5-5 it goes down as a 9-0 rangers win the stats from that game do count the next morning 10 cent beer night is the talk of the sports world hell it's the talk of the news world too another black mark on cleveland the front office of the indians immediately goes into damage control ted bonda the executive vice president of the indians quickly tried to minimize the damage and spread blame from the event away from the cleveland indians organization it's a good try, but ultimately in vain. Seth and John talked to Bonda's son Tom about the fallout of 10-Cent Beer Night and his dad's attempts to shift the blame.
10: After the game, the forfeiture, my father was obviously very hurt. He loves this town. Black eye on this town. Uh, the papers around the country were headlines with another Cleveland misadventure. We had the famous river catching on fire and, the, our mayor at the time, his hair caught on fire at one time. Uh, our mayor at the time, Mayor Perk, skipped the White House reception because his wife had a bowling night that night. I mean, there's lots of Cleveland jokes going on at the time. My father by no means wanted to add to that list. He was trying to help this town. By the same token, he truly felt, from a financial standpoint, the night was a success. As I said, there's 20,000 more fans in the stands that day. He felt that it was, the whole incident was overblown that it was not a riot, that it should have been controllable. He felt that Billy Martin and the Texas Rangers added to the problem. The whole incident, of the prior game in Texas, the mood of the two teams contributed to the problem. He was very upset when the game was forfeited. I know he received a call from Lee McPhail. Lee was president of the American League, who, of course, he knew very well. Lee has some Cleveland connections, had been in many of our games. Uh, and from Bowie Coon, who was a commissioner at the time. My father and Phil Segi, who was general manager of the team, wrote quite a letter in protest of the forfeiture, appealed the decision. I think they always knew their appeal had absolutely no chance, but they felt they had to defend their town. They were planning to have, I believe, two or three more beer nights that season, and the next day my father was not, was still planning on having it. In fact, he sent some people to Milwaukee on I believe it was June 21st of that year, just a couple weeks after this event, because they were having a beer night. And he sent them there to examine how they were doing things. What could they do better to improve the night to still bring in the revenue but try and prevent the fiasco that this became on the field? But he never felt that the idea was wrong to do. He felt it was a good idea where some things went wrong, a lot of contributing factors, as I said. Uh, He blamed Billy Martin for a lot of it. I think there was actually some shouting matches between him and Billy at different times throughout that year.
7: Cleveland did what any ball club would do, they blame the umpires. You know, thats uh, you've got a choice, you can blame your own personnel or you can blame the umpires and if you lose a ball game it's easier to blame the umpires.
8: He's going to fight you to the end, do I think it was his fault now, do I think uh, he had Promoted it or or brought it along, uh, I guess. When you come on a field with with a bat in your hand and say you're going to get somebody, I guess, I guess uh, again going back, that's Billy being Billy.
7: Well, we're the umpires and we're we're just to control what happens on the field. And if anybody is going to warn the fans, it has to come from the people who run the Cleveland Indians organization. You know, they they need to call down to have the public announcer make an announcement. But I think a public announcement would just if they'd announced us not having any more streakers, I think we'd have had ten times as many. You know what I'm saying? I think the kids were there and having a good time and and uh, they weren't that, uh, see the ball game, they were there only because it was ten cent beer night and they brought their marijuana and they were partying and having a good time. And when you have that many young people and uh, you tell them not to do something, well, a few of them are going to do it. And that's just the way life is. But uh, no, there's nothing that I see the umpires could have done
4: differently.
1: Only 12 people were arrested that night, which is remarkable considering how many illegal activities took place in the stadium that night. Joe Tate took a lot of heat for his portrayal on the air of the events of that night from members of the front office. They even threatened to fire him for his describing the ninth inning as a riot which clearly it was.
6: The aftermath, when an element of the Indians' front office thought that I had overreacted in my commentary about what was going on and uh, even uh, thought perhaps I should have been relieved of my duties, one of the things that I had said on the air, because it was true, because at the old ballpark, anyone in the front office had to go by our booth to get out of there and I saw them all bailing out in about the seventh inning. So uh, I made mention of the fact that there was nobody in authority there when uh, it really hit the fan in the ninth inning. And uh, The owner of the team, uh, Nick Mileti, was out of town at the time, and he came back, and I gave him a copy of the ninth inning, and then he talked to people who were at the ballpark, the ushers, the cops, and and, uh, it was Nick who said, He just merely told the truth, and that was the end of it. There was never anything further
1: said about that. Tom Bonda, in his interviews with with the filmmakers, did uh, address the fact that his dad left the stadium in the seventh inning. He said his dad, Ted Bonda, was there with Mrs. Bonda, and that they always left games she attended in the sixth or seventh inning. But What shocked me about the Indians was that they were scheduled a second 10-cent beer night for the next month. Yes, another 10-cent beer night on July 18th just six weeks after the absolute debacle. The first time Seth Mockerman had to confirm for us because we simply couldn't believe it, but he saw the ticket steps.
11: A sheet of tickets from July 18th for the next 10 cent beer night. And I, I actually looked that up because that, you know, since I had the date and what I found was that they did have another beer night and 41,000 people showed up this time. They gave you a two beer limit at the time. And, I don't I didn't find any facts to confirm this, but I'm sure I'm sure they ramped up security. I have never been a quitter.
2: To leave office before my term is completed is abhorrent to every instinct in my body. America needs a full time president and a full time Congress in a period when our entire focus should be on the great issues of peace abroad and prosperity without inflation at home. Therefore, I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Vice President Ford will be sworn in as president at that hour in this office.
1: It was just three weeks after that second 10 cent beer night that President Nixon resigned. Instead of facing conviction for impeachment, which is what would have happened. summer of 1974 is one of the worst on record economically and politically in the last 50 years of the United States. Stagflation, the oil crisis, unemployment, 10-cent beer night, the impeachment and resignation, the first ever, of a U.S. president. And While 10-cent beer night was certainly a unique event in American sports history, in my lifetime I remember the so-called malice in the palace when Ron Artest went into the stands to fight Detroit Pistons fans at the palace in Auburn Hills. Fans came on the floor and fought with the Indiana Pacers. A truly wild scene. There's there's a good new Netflix movie about that. It's a sickening night in Michigan back in 2004. But Seth and John uh, asked Tom Bonda if he thought something like 10 Cent Beer Night could happen again.
10: And I forget how many years ago it was that Ron Artest went into the stands. Uh, Caused quite a ruckus that day. People say things. I go to a lot of different games, a lot of different sports, and it's unbelievable how people insult a player Yes, they might be a lousy athlete, they may be having a bad day, but it has nothing to do with their parents, their heritage, their girlfriend, their mother. I mean, it's just unbelievable what is said. And there's times I'm amazed that the control players have. Beer night could happen again. The same type of event could happen again. Circumstances will be different. Different security measures will be taken. But so many factors came together on that night, and those factors are still out there. People come to events today still drunk. And I don't know what the next incident will be, but there will be one.
1: The city of Cleveland would ultimately default in 1977. The city would bottom out through the 70s into the 80s. But Cleveland's made quite a comeback. I lived in the land for five years. I loved my time up there. Lived downtown, lived in Cleveland Heights, lived in Tremont, and still go back to Cleveland all the time. It's getting better and better every time I go up there. Truly remarkable what they're doing with the city that was once the laughingstock of the nation. We close with Mike Hargrove, the former manager of the Indians, a combatant that night at Municipal Stadium. Mike was asked about, you know, people who think of the River Fire or cent Beer Night, how that defines Cleveland. Maybe they define Cleveland in the latter half of this 20th century, but that's not 21st century Cleveland. Now I am just say that because the Browns are awesome this year and fighting for an AFC championship, and Mike Hargrove agrees.
5: There are so many good things that have happened in, th- in this city and to this city. For this city to be remembered as the city that that uh, had 10-cent beer night and the city that the river caught on fire. I think that, you know, that's that that was then. Uh, Cleveland has come a long, long way. You know, I like it here. I'm proud to proud to say that I live in Ohio. I'm proud to say that I live in Cleveland. And I'm associated with the, with the city. There are so many good memories that I have uh, of my baseball career here, both as a player, as a coach, and a manager, that 10-cent beer night, while it was memorable, you know, it may be the most memorable, but it certainly rang down at the bottom.
1: book recommendation is seasons in hell by our guest mike shropshire seasons in hell with billy martin whitey herzog and the worst baseball team in history again esquire magazine named it one of the top 20 baseball books of all time and you can pick up seasons in hell uh by clicking the link in the show notes to buy it great book thanks again to evergreen podcast thanks so much to seth mockerman john dolphin hope to see those guys pick this project up again uh and special thanks to all our guests in season six we think it was our best season ever you can go back and listen to it. Go to evergreenpodcast.com or wherever you get your pods. And go listen to any of these episodes from Season 6 for 2021. We will be back next year. Uh, we've got t-shirts for sale. If you want to get a Ohio V. The World t-shirt, uh, don't hesitate to email us at ohiovtheworld at gmail.com. Like us on Facebook, and we're on Instagram at Ohio v the World Podcast Or on Twitter, you can follow us at ohiovtheworld.com. Tell your friends about the show and and share this episode. If you listen on iTunes, there's an option to share this show. Just scroll down, post a link to the episode uh, from our website, ohiovtheworldpodcast.com, Twitter, Facebook, whatever. Any Cleveland fans you know or any Cleveland haters, uh, we think people get a real kick out of this episode. So we put a lot of time and effort into the show, and it's great to have so many of you listening. The Indians will be history now. Next year, they'll be known as the Cleveland Guardians starting next spring. Here's hoping the Guardians can break the longest streak in North American major sports without a championship. That distinction belongs to the Cleveland baseball franchise. And it's been since 1948 since the Cleveland Indians, or now the Cleveland Guardians, have won a title. It was the Chicago Cubs who held that record, 108 years before winning the World Series in 2016. They won in extra innings in Game 7, and guessed, you guessed it, the Cleveland Indians, winning the title at Progressive Field, just blocks away from where the old municipal stadium used to stand. Thanks again for listening, guys. It's been an awesome year. Subscribe to the show. We'll see you next year on Ohio vs. the World.